Hey there, ladies and gentlemen, and thanks for joining us on the Great Exchange, a podcast dedicated to looking at the world through gospel glasses. My name is Maddie, and across the computer screen from me for the last time this year, 2021, Nick Semenoch, how you doing, buddy? It's good to be here with you. And it's good to be here with you, too, and I'm very excited to be finishing the book of Genesis that we started almost, I guess, a year and a quarter ago, or a year and a third? How does that work? A year and a third ago. Yeah. So, yeah, it's very it's, exciting. It's been a long run. It's been some, I don't know, like 120 podcasts, so 60 Scripture Saturday episodes or thereabouts that we've been in the book of Genesis, which all things considered, considering this book has 50 chapters, took us 60 episodes, it's not so bad. Yeah, it's not too bad at all. And, you know, I've I've looked at how many chapters there are in the Bible. And if you were to preach, if it was possible to preach one chapter a week, uh, you'd never finish in the course of your life. So that's <laughs> kind of good news. I mean, we're on a good start here. So yeah. So <laughs> well, that's good. That's good. Um thankfully we we're not that ambitious. Um because we would have to spend a lot more time doing this. But yeah, I'm very excited to, to be coming to the end of what was a fruitful study of the book of Genesis. I think it was really, um, you know, a blessing on my end. And, you know, it's always good to get to go through scripture with you, brother. So um, I enjoy doing it. And I'm excited to wrap up um, this big project. So before we do that, though, just want to highlight for everybody, thegreatexchange.ca. You can go over there, check out everything that we got going on over there. Got some shirt designs, got three podcasts coming out weekly. This Scripture Saturday is one of them. And we also do a midweek message as well, um, where we just bring cultural analysis and biblical topics and stuff like that. More topical kind of uh, podcasts. Uh, we just finished going over and we would suggest you go check it out if you have not on our YouTube page, The Great Exchange Godcast. Um, we're over there and we just did an episode uh, called The Ubiquity of CRT. We also talked to our friend Samuel Say uh, or about, sorry, about the U ubiquity of CRT. And then we also did the most recent one was on the Bill C-4 that just passed in, Can passed in Canada and what that means for biblical Christians who uh, preach and teach biblical sexual ethics and what the possible outcome could be from that tragic um, travesty of a criminal code amendment that's uh, been passed in our country. So those are a couple of the episodes we've done. We also have a Thursday podcast with our brand, our, our brand, our friend Bryce Clausen. Uh, he brings some good analysis of, of Christ and culture from the 21st century perspective. Um, so we appreciate him bringing that. So that's over our, at our webpage, thegreatexchange.co. So go over there, check that out. But without further ado, let's get into 
the topic at hand because we got a lot to cover and I'm sure Nick, you're going to want to kind of um, be able to give a little bit of an analysis on the, the entirety of the book of Genesis in conclusion as well. So let's get into the book of Genesis chapter 50. Nick, can you give a concise little recap of just where we are picking up in the story in Genesis? Yeah, and right now we are, well, as we've made mention, the very end, the very last chapter and preceding this was Jacob blessing his sons, his descendants, as he was nearing the, his death. At the end of last week, we saw that he had gone through each of his sons, given them a particular prophecy concerning their future. And at the end of it all, he drew his final breath as verse 33 of chapter 49 says, he drew his feet up into his bed, breathed his last and was gathered to his people, not just, you know, being united with those who have died before him, but ultimately being united with those of the household of faith in a heavenly place until the coming of, or I should say the second coming of Christ, when we'll all be joined together. And this is just a wonderful picture that we see here of Jacob not leaving anything undone. That's what we called the episode because we see that that was his final desire, that his sons would be blessed, that they would receive that particular blessing from the Lord through him. And now we're seeing in chapter 50, the results. What is going to happen now that the father of the 12 sons has died, has passed away, has gone on into uh, glory? How does that going to play itself out in these sons where there was a great divide, a great rivalry, as it were, a great animosity? How are they going to relate to one another now that the one who may have been the reason for them keeping their feuding to a limit is now gone? Yes, exactly. And I think it's important that you bring up uh, that final verse in chapter 49. It says, when Jacob finished commanding his sons, he drew up his feet into the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. Because what happens in this chapter immediately follows what just happens at the end there. It's another unfortunate chapter break uh, that we're that we're coming on to. But um, anyways, let's pick up in chapter 50, verse one, and it reads as follows. Then Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. And Joseph commanded his servants the physicians to embalm his father. So the physicians embalmed Israel. 40 days were required for it, for that is how many are required for embalming. And the Egyptians wept over him 70 days. And when the days of weeping for him were past, Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh, saying, If now I have found favor in your eyes, please speak in the ears of Pharaoh, saying, My father made me swear, saying, I'm about to die in my tomb that I hewed out, of my, out for myself in the land of Canaan. There shall you bury me. Now, therefore, let me please go up and bury my father. Then I will return. And Pharaoh answered, go up and bury your father as he made you swear. So Joseph went up to bury his father. With him went up all the servants of Pharaoh of the land of Egypt, as well as the household of Joseph, his brothers and his father's household. 
Only their children and the flocks and their herds were left in the land of Goshen. And there went up with them, or with, with him, pardon me, both chariots and horsemen. It was a very great company when they came to the threshing floor of Atad, which is beyond the Jordan. They lamented there with a very great and grievous lamentation, and he made a mourning for his father seven days. When the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the mourning on the threshing floor at Atad, they said, this is a grievous morning by the Egyptians. Therefore, the place was named Abel Mizraim. It is beyond the Jordan. Thus his sons did for him as he had commanded them, for his sons carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave of the field of Machpelah to the east of Mamre, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephraim, to the uh, Ephraim the Hittite, to possess as a burying place. After he had buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt with his brothers and all who had gone up with him to bury his father. Mm -hmm. So here we see right at the beginning of chapter 50, the reaction of Joseph over the death of his father. And this is very significant because if we remember how Jacob had loved Joseph more than all the rest of his brothers, we see that there's a reciprocal love in the heart of Joseph for his father, Jacob. That came through when he first revealed himself even to his brothers when they came down from the land of Canaan to Egypt to buy food. When he reveals himself to his brother, he cries out, is my father still, I'm Joseph, is my father still alive? You can see that he had this great desire to be with his father. And even in this moment here, we see at the beginning of chapter 50, there is this great sorrow that his father has perished, that his father has died, that the effects of sin have brought about the death of his father, whom he loved so dearly. And I think that's a really important thing that we look at first off is that, as we've seen throughout the book of Genesis since chapter three, death has befallen every single person born of man, except for Enoch, the only person who walked with God and God took him out from the world. But death has come to every single person since then, and Jacob is no exception, and neither will any of the sons of Jacob be an exception to this either. So we see the effects of sin carrying itself out once again, showing once more that the one who is going to crush the head of the serpent is not in Jacob, and it's not going to be in those immediate descendants that follow him. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's great to see Joseph's affection for his father, um, how much he loved him. And I think it's awesome to see just how honored Jacob was, um, not only by his sons, but even in Egypt, right? It says they embalmed him. It was a process that took 40 days, um, but the Egyptians wept for him 70 days, which obviously shows their great affection for Joseph and him and his character as a prime minister of Egypt. And, uh, you know, by proxy, how, how much they, they love Joseph's uh, household, which is including his father, Jacob. And um, I, 
it's also wonderful to see. I mean, you have an extended of account of them taking uh, Jacob's body to Canaan, to the land where his his fathers have been buried, right? Um, and again, you see the faithfulness of the sons, though uh, much of the story of the household of Israel has been one of tumult, of um, unfaithfulness, of scandal. Uh, you see here, at the last, the, the sons of Jacob are coming together to honor their father in, in, in a way that's fitting for him. Um, though Jacob himself was uh, a man of many faces, <laughs> it, 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 which is depicted in his two names, right? Jacob and Israel. Um, he died as Israel, right? Uh, in in the Lord. He died as the covenant patriarch uh, of this promised uh, line of, of the seed of the woman that we talked about way back in Genesis 3, beginning there. Um, so, I mean, the procession's great. Uh, the ceremonies are great. Um, everything that goes into the burial of of Jacob just shows the pivotal role that he plays in um, the life of this, this, uh, you know, as a patriarch in the life of Israel, obviously Israel is named after him. And, uh, you know, the pomp of this funeral, I think is fitting for um, honoring and recognizing him as that that covenant faithful patriarch who um, extended the promises of God to many a generation and to the burgeoning uh, household here in Goshen. Yeah, and this this text here really highlights the promise of God to Israel that he made mention to him in chapter 46 after those years of silence when Jacob is going to go down to Israel he promises him that he would go with him to Egypt that he would also bring him up again and Joseph's hands would close his eyes and those are the very things that we're seeing take place here at the end of chapter 49 and into chapter 50 is that God ultimately did bring about these promises to Jacob that he was with him when he went down into Egypt. He never forsook him. And Joseph's hands were the ones that were first on him after his passings. So we see that God continued to be faithful to his promise. And Jacob is the benefactor of God being faithful in this moment. And it even comes through with how his bones, his body would be taken up to the land of Canaan, to that burying place that he had hewn out, out, of, the, out of the rock for himself. And that he was still being, even his physical presence, his body, was his remains were going to be carried up back into the promised land, which was part of that promise from God. Ultimately, it's not the fullness, the full reality, the full weight of that promise being fulfilled in that heavenly dwelling, which Jacob was looking forward to as Abraham and Isaac were also looking forward to that promised land, which God was going to prepare for them. 
which ultimately will find its full realization when Christ returns. But even as we see here now, those promises of God are fulfilled in his life. And as they're going up, there's this great showing, as you made mention, Maddie, of how the Egyptians weeped and lamented over Jacob. And, and I read in one commentary that the 70 days mentioned here, it's only two days shorter than what would have been given for somebody in like Pharaoh or somebody in a royal estate. So it's very interesting to see how greatly the people of Egypt thought of Jacob because of his son, Joseph. Mm -hmm. Even the practice of embalming, right? Uh, that's something that was done to kings and royalty and special people within Egypt. Not every single person necessarily would have had that uh, same, same treatment. Uh, so even for them to do that to a foreigner like Jacob uh, shows that, you know, he was highly regarded, obviously, primarily on account of who Joseph was and on his word. But uh, nevertheless, we see that uh, God gives him this wonderful send off and it's fit for the fact that he is Israel. And, um, you know, again, you just make mention of the fact that the promises of God always remain true. And, you know, this unthinkable thing that he gets a son, his favorite son, his most beloved son of his loved bride, Rachel, back from the dead, and then he's able to uh, live to an old age in a fruitful land of Goshen to see the progeny, um, you know, proliferate in the land. And then for, for Joseph to um, close his eyes, you know, that's, that's, that's i'm sure if joseph could have picked how he or if joseph if jacob or israel could have picked um how he would die this is probably as good as a scenario as he could have hoped for even though obviously as you've made mention death is a reality that um for the christian is is most unnatural and it's not the way it should be um so it is still tragic though um this is by all intents and purposes, a, a good send off uh, of the patriarch here. Um, yeah. But, you know, it's even significant, right? Even the foreigners, when they're, when they're taking him to Canaan to, to mourn over him and to, to uh, put, bury his body with, with his dead, with, with his fathers, they, the Canaanites recognize that, Oh, this is, this is great sorrow that, um, that has become the Egyptians. And we obviously know that it was the Egyptians who were accompanying the household of Israel in this, but I mean, it is, it, it is obviously quite um, the ceremony that they performed for, for Jacob here. And um, I think it's very fitting given he's a, a very important patriarch in, in the life of Israel. Question 92. What is a sacrament? Answer. A sacrament is an holy ordinance instituted by Christ, wherein, by sensible signs, Christ and the benefits of the new covenant are represented, sealed, and applied to believers. Do you love listening to The Great Exchange? You can subscribe to our podcast on any one of these podcast platforms, Spotify, Stitcher, 
Google Podcasts, or Apple Podcasts and have two engaging episodes delivered to your mobile device each week. Our midweek message covers a myriad of topics and teaches us to look at them all through gospel glasses. And our Scripture Saturday episode is just that, an opportunity to study the Bible one passage of Scripture at a time. Miss an episode? Visit our website, thegreatexchange.ca, and you will find the complete back catalog of our episodes. And don't be shy. We love to hear from you, our listeners. Send us a message on Facebook or Instagram, or if you're not social media savvy, send us an email to thegreatexchangepodcast at gmail.com. Thank you all for joining in our ministry as we help you look at the world through gospel glasses. Yeah, absolutely. And maybe just before we move on in the text as well, I just want to make mention of here how Joseph even speaks to the household of Pharaoh to get permission to carry out his father's wishes as well. Even though Joseph has this great place of power within the nation of Egypt, he never once presumes upon his position. He always recognizes that he is subservient to Pharaoh, that he is underneath him. And how he approaches Pharaoh in this is very telling of how he sees himself in the land, that he is not keeping his position there forever, but he's seeing that he is just a steward of the position that God has given him. And he speaks asking for the favor of Pharaoh to go and carry out his father's wishes. And he promises to return. This isn't, I'm going up and I'm going to stay there. And that's it. I'm done here. But he understands that his role is still going to be to carry out being a good prime minister in the land. But upon Pharaoh's consent, he would go carry out his father's wishes and then return to the land of Egypt, where, as, we're, as we would see if we were to continue on reading the book or going through the book of the Bible into the book of Exodus, we'd see that this would be the beginning of those 400 years of hardship, which were going to be promised to Abraham's descendants before they would be brought out of that land with great possessions back into the promised land to be God's chosen inheritance as a light to the nations. Yeah. And just on that note, as you said, before we move on, Abel Mizraim, the, the fact that the, the Canaanites called that place where the Egyptians were mourning, great Egyptian mourning um, because of Jacob, how, how much stranger does it make what transpires in the exodus seem right this wasn't just uh, a reclusive household of israel that was living on the ex like the outskirts of egypt in the land of goshen that nobody knew about right it, it, it makes the idea that this forgetfulness of the king was more a willingful neglect and um, subjugation of the people of Israel than it was as though he just happened to for, forget, right? It was a more willingful suppression because this is, this is a great ceremony. Um, it's a great testimony that stands against the later generation that would so sorely oppress the household of Israel, the descendants of Jacob. Um, it, 
especially after Joseph's great service and um, the fact that he saved so many Egyptian lives in in that service. So I think that's also just something that uh, certainly stands out to me as well. Uh, <coughs> anyways, let's press forward. Um, let's let's move on to verse 15 through verse 21 here where we're we're going to see a very very interesting story with great implications um, play out for something that we hold very near and dear to Nick and that is compatibilism you know how do how do the degrees of god work with the volitional acts of man and how they come come to uh, together and i think this is maybe one of the the greatest accounts in the entire bible of of what is not maybe explicitly stated in scripture but just naturally assumed um and i think that's very helpful um but it's also a really interesting story given the relationship between joseph and his brothers so Verse 15, when Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. Let's stop there. So the scenario, Nick, is, okay, Jacob's dead. Israel's gone. Uh-oh, now that our father's not here to sway Joseph, we acted wickedly and evil to him. Maybe Joseph's going to get back at us. Now that dad's gone, now that dad's out of the picture, maybe Joseph's going to take his opportunity to strike back against us for the wickedness that we showed him throughout the entirety of his life. And that really leads to them devising this little scheme where they're like just planting a seed in Joseph's mind like, Hey, if you were thinking that, don't do it. <laughs> yeah, that's kind of the idea behind what they're getting here or getting towards is, well, I mean, ultimately, when you really think about it and you look at the situation, it's been 37 years since they sold Joseph into slavery. It's been 20 or 17 years since he last told his brothers, you meant this for evil, but God meant it for good. And what, we're, what we can really gather from this is after almost 40 years of time, the guilt still remained within them of the great wickedness that they had done to their brother. And Joseph has shown nothing but kindness to his brothers over these past 17 years of them being there. And yet they are still fearful. They're still afraid that after all these years of kindness, great harm is going to be done to them because in some capacity, they think the only reason Joseph is being kind to us is because Jacob is alive. But as soon as he's out of the picture, we're done for. 
Now he'll get his just desserts by taking out his vengeance and his wrath upon us for the evil that we did to him. So as you make mention, they, they make this plan. They come up with this statement that, well, this is what your father said right before he died. This was his death wish, as it were, that you would forgive their sin. And I can't help but think of how Joseph responds here when he weeps because his brothers didn't understand a whole bunch of things when it comes to how the mercy and grace and forgiveness of God works. They thought it was in a man to forgive them of their sins, but it's no, he's going to say it's no, it's God. And he goes on to say, I'm not in the place of God. I know we're going to get into that, but, but that's really like, they're, they're not understanding key theological issues, key Christian doctrines biblical doctrines, which would lead them to understand, though we do evil, God still provides good for us. And that kindness of God as the kindness of Jacob or Joseph here is to lead to repentance, not fear of punishment. And because they have failed, even to this point, dealt with their guilt biblically, they're still fearing condemnation. They're still fearing punishment for their evil actions. Yeah, yeah. And, and I, I can't imagine what a dagger to Joseph's heart this would be, because as you mentioned, he's not showing ill will towards his brothers at all. He's been willing to, because he's a Christian man, because he's converted, because he's regenerate, he's been willing to forgive readily. He's been willing to bear the cost of that difficult forgiveness and show his brothers nothing but grace and goodness. So they're basically accusing him of, of, you know, of only doing it because he loves Jacob and not truly being good and gracious towards them. And that's a wicked accusation, given the fact that he's borne their transgressions out of, out of love for them. Uh, as a brother, um, so to to hear this this kind of wicked accusation brought against him in kind of a backhanded way, right through this scheme uh, that they would suggest that he was coming after them or or going to kill them or or hurt them or take vengeance on him, as you make mention, verse nineteen is a gr- a wonderful conclusion. Joseph knows he's a sinner. Joseph knows that he's not in the place of God to condemn his brothers. And he knows even more than that, that as you've made mention, he's already talked about that verse 20. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Very in keeping with how he has acted towards them this whole time. So this paranoid conspiracy that they have to come up with is really just, as you make mention, just goes to show they truly don't understand the grace of God 
and what that means for forgiven sinners and how forgiven sinners out of the grace of God can so easily bear the reproaches of others. Yeah, and that's a really good point because we see in how they approach Joseph even is back to the, well, we'll be your servants. We're, we're not going to be counted as your family. We'll just be your servants. We'll be hired hands. Just don't treat us ill-willed. Do not treat us poorly. And that really goes to show and to tell us that they don't understand the grace of God. Because if we think of how God has, even through all these years, treated Joseph, he has kept him. He has kept him and provided for him in the midst of great hardships and provided for him abundantly and beyond what he could truly deserve or expect. And in the same way, over the course of all these years, even when the family first came down to Egypt to get supplies so that they wouldn't starve, he provided not only the grain for them, but he gave them their money back too. So he provided above and beyond. And that's the same thing. And it's the same way that God deals with us. He not only forgives our sins, but he provides us the perfect righteousness that we might stand as reconciled sinners, as adopted sons and daughters, that we might be considered as part of his family, that we're not merely servants, though we serve him. But we are so much more than that. We are friends of God. We are considered just as Abraham was when we have faith in God. We, we are considered the friend of God. We're considered so much more than somebody who is just in servitude to him. And Joseph here is really trying to bring that out to them so that they could understand that. You're not just my servant. You're my brothers. You're part of our father's lineage. And we are to be considered the same because ultimately we share in the same covenant because God has covenanted us mm -hmm. to himself. Yeah, absolutely. The, the principle here is they're not merely hired hands, right? Both the son and the hired servant work in the father's household. But what is the difference? The son inherits the, the inheritance of the father. And that's, that's a total relational difference between how one relates to another. Um, and, and, you know, we see that even in the parables of our Lord Jesus Christ, when he's talking about the difference in those relationships. Um, that's what Joseph's trying to get through their mind. And this leads me to think of this whole account, right? Them being afraid. Okay, our intercessor, right? Jacob, Israel, our intercessor. He's gone. He's dead. Uh-oh, without him, we're going to get the wrath that is due us, right? It's going to happen. But thanks be to God, our intercessor, the true Israel, he, though he died, he rose again and he defeated sin and death so that we never have to worry about whether or not we have an advocate before God the Father and that would mediate his wrath, that would propitiate his wrath on our behalf. And it, through Christ, our, our mediator, we are adopted as sons, that we're not hired hands, we're not merely slaves or servants of the household of God, but we are accounted 
as sons in our elder brother, the Lord Jesus Christ. Yeah, that's right. And because of that, there's great benefit. There's great care that God takes over us as well. And that's shown in how Joseph responds to his brothers just at the end of or in verse 21. He tells them, do not fear. How many times does Jesus tell his disciples, be not afraid, do not fear, it is I, right? It's the same sort of pronouncement, that, that comfort that needs to come from them, that peace that is theirs in Christ. Do not fear, I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. And that's the same way that God deals with us. Don't you understand the grace of God? If you do, look at the great benefits that you have received in him. You do not have to fear this, anything that's going to happen in this life. Though there can be great hardships that come, I will take care of you. I will not leave you or forsake you. You are forever mine. I've sealed you for the for the day of judgment. You will not fall under my wrath. You will be provided for day after day after day, and I will bless you with the sacraments. I will give you the sign of the covenant. I'll give you baptism. I'll give you the Lord's supper. I will give you the preaching of the word. I'll give you access to my, in my throne room through prayer. I'll give you all these things. Why? Because I'm gracious and kind to you. That's what the Lord Jesus Christ gives to us because we're united with him by faith. And this is something that Joseph is trying to explain to his brothers as well. Because God is gracious to me, I will be gracious to you. Same thing for us, because God is gracious to us. How ought we to care for those in, the, in our midst as well, especially in our day and age where there are those in the church going under great suffering and the great fear, we ought to display the same graces that God has given us to them so that they can see that they not need to fear, but they can live in joyful expectation that all that they need will be met in the Lord Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. And one of the greatest sources of comfort, Nick, is the sovereignty of God. And that is what I do want to just touch on really quickly when we look at verse 20 here. This is a key stone text when it comes to understanding how God's decree and human responsibility are compatible. And Joseph's already made mention of this in chapter 45 five and seven when he says you know don't feel bad about sending me in slavery because god was using this to to preserve for us a remnant in egypt uh to to save many lives and he says it more succinctly here he says as for you you meant evil against me so it was your your volition your desire your will to do evil to me but God being sovereign and controlling all things, he meant that for good. He was using that evil that you meant for me to bring about the fact that many people, numerous people should be kept alive today. And that his promise to Abraham would come true, that he would have... Uh, a, a people for himself, gr a great number of descendants who would be delivered out of this land of sojourning, out of this land of wandering, out of this foreign land of Egypt. So 
what do we have there? We have the many free will decisions, the different uh, decisions between Simeon and Judah and Levi and all these different descendants of Israel coming into play. They all have a little bit of a different take and a little bit of a different angle of why they want Joseph out of the picture. But all these are converging in the greater, grander decree of God that Joseph would be sold into Egypt, that he then might lead to the salvation of these people. And this is ultimately echoed, as we've made mention before, it's ultimately fulfilled in, in Acts 4 when we see that, you know, preaching to the Jews, they, they say, you, all these people conspired against the, the Lord's anointed, the Lord Jesus Christ, to deliver them up. And they all had their different reasons. Herod was a jealous king. Pontius Pilate was a coward. The Jews didn't like Jesus because they thought he was a blasphemer. All of these different angles are coming in. All these people out of the volition, out of the evil of their own hearts, due to their fallen nature, conspired against Christ to have him crucified. And the most evil act ever, well, it's said that God had appointed it to happen. This wasn't plan B. This was how God had always chose to deliver his people through the sending of his son. And that is something that we need to understand that if the most evil act in all of history, God could use the evil intentions of man's heart for good and the ultimate salvation of a great multitude, which is here foreshadowed, we need to understand that those are the biblical categories that are presented to us, that both human responsibility and the, the sovereign decree of God are compatible. Now, that might not seem like the most sensical thing when it comes to bringing in human philosophy and stuff, but we need to derive our philosophy, our understanding of the world and of how God works in it not from external systems of philosophy and concepts of man's libertarian free will and import them into the text or some sort of idea of middle knowledge that wasn't known for 16 centuries in the church until the counter-reformation trying to speak directly against the predestinated plans of God um, and his sovereignty and salvation came up with it in Molina. No, that stuff is unbiblical. It's nonsense and it and it's getting away from what is directly being taught and derived from the proper reading of scripture yeah that's right because if you if you look at even just the book of genesis that we have been we can see that there is a great beginning that god creates all things good but when sin enters into the picture he doesn't just oh i don't know what to do now i guess we'll just let it happen, or maybe I'll just scrap the whole plan and start fresh. God says, this is exactly in accordance with what I'm going to bring about at the end of all time. And that's what we're going to see as we finish up the chapter here in Genesis 50, is that how the book starts is not exactly how it ends. It starts with life, it ends with death, but it gives a future hope, 
a future hope that God is going to use all the evil that comes about throughout human history to bring about a glorious end that can only come about because of the work of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So because of what he has done, we have a great hope, just as Jacob had great hope, just as Isaac had hope, just as Abraham had hope. And now, as we're going to see here at the end of the chapter, as even Joseph had hope for what was yet to come. Mm -hmm. So verse 22 to the end. So Joseph remained in Egypt. He and his father's house, Joseph lived 110 years, and Joseph saw Ephraim's children to the third generation. The children also of Mecher, the son of Manasseh, were counted as Joseph's own. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, saying, or sorry, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old. They embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. So Nick, as you made mention, the end of the book of Genesis is in total contrast to the beginning. The beginning, light and life enter the picture. But the drastic evil ramifications of chapter three of sin entering through the fall of Adam and Eve is that now the book ends with death, uncertainty, but as you've made mention, still that little speck of hope that we got after God pronounced that um, judgment upon Adam and Eve for sinning, um, which is the, the fact that what he's been doing since has been drawing out the seed of the woman, highlighting the lineage of that, that seed. And that is the great hope. And through that seed, all those who are the remnant will of that seed, we'll get a deed, we'll get a land of rest, of peace, of shalom from their enemies. But right now, as Genesis ends, Israel is in the household of Egypt, or is in the land of Egypt, in the land of sojourning, with their two greatest patriarchs, right? With, with Joseph and Jacob, dead there's lots of uncertainty and darkness and that is certainly contrasted with as i've made mention the way that the chapter or the, the way that the book begins but yet there is still hope even amidst the dark darkness and the uncertainty yeah and that's something that you can see here at the end of the chapter and how Joseph's mind was truly renewed with the word of God and how he had come to understand the promises that God had given to his father and to his father's fathers, uh, especially when you think of the word that was given to Abraham back in the earlier chapters of Genesis, where he said that there was going to be 400 years where those people were going to be under great hardship, but they were going to be brought out 
to inherit the promised land. And that's what Joseph gives as a reminder to his descendants so that they wouldn't lose hope, right? I'm about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to that promised land. God's word will always be fulfilled. And that's why Joseph here, though he knows that he is dying now, he knows that his and he's been given an inheritance by his father, right? He was given that uh, that mountain slope that he bought off of uh, Hamor, Shechem's father. Um, so we see that there's this expectation that his bones, his physical remains would be brought back out of Egypt into the promised land where he had hoped to dwell as well with the people of God. And we see that coming to pass later on in the book of Exodus. We see when they're, when they're exiting the land of Egypt, that they take the bones of Joseph with them. And then later on, when you get into the book of Joshua, you can see that they go and they place Joseph's bones in that burying spot. So we can see how Joseph has great confidence in God that the very things which he said would come to pass will come to pass. He says, God will visit you. It's, it's not, well, hopefully he does. Maybe, maybe, I don't know. He, he, might, he might break his word. He might not bring it to fulfillment. He's, like, he's absolutely certain that when God speaks a word, it will come to pass, especially when it's a word of promise, a word of blessing upon his people. And that's something that Joseph takes stock in. That's something that as we end this book, we should be taking stock in as well, because we can see the effects of sin in our own lives, as all these people in Genesis have seen. There's been casualty after casualty, death after death. There's been great calamity surrounding them, great war and hardship brought upon them, great feuding. You think of in the brothers, great feuding between you know, Jacob and Esau, and then you see how there's great animosity between those who are supposed to be of a great family relationship. You think of Leah and Rachel, and you see how in the midst of it all, God is still knitting together a bunch of sinners to be one unit, one body prepared for him to be his bride, the bride of Christ. And in this all, this is, I think, the great message that we're supposed to get from the book of Genesis is that there's great hope, even in the midst of great hardship. There's something to look forward to, even if right now things seem very difficult, where we have no certainty. Well, there's certainty in the promises of God. And if we lose sight of that, we'll lose hope. We'll, we'll, we'll not know how we're supposed to act in this world we'll get confused, we'll start doubting God, we'll start trusting in other things, which ultimately cannot save, cannot give us any hope. But if we have our eyes fixed on God and his word and what his promises are, then we can have great assurance moving forward that things might get even rougher than they are now. But you know what? God is faithful and true, and he is worthy to be trusted, worthy to be praised, worthy to give my life as a sacrifice, sacrificial offering to day in, day out, until the day when he calls me home to be with him.
Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the great, I suppose, hope that we have is Genesis is followed by Exodus, which is in the Torah, is the great type of the way that God saves, right? It's the great story of God's deliverance that over and over and over again, not only in the Old Testament, but also fulfilled in the New Testament in Christ, that is this picture of what God is doing in salvation, of how he delivers his people out of the land of their sojourning, out of the land of tumult and strife, and he delivers them by a mighty hand. Um, And that is the really good news is though they haven't got that seed yet um that line continues and the promises of god remain steadfast and sure and we can though we're well beyond genesis we can look forward to the promise of god fulfilled um because his word and his promise are one and the same his word and his action are one and the same just as we saw when he spoke creation into existence and we are assured then of the second coming of Christ, his second advent to deliver finally and fully that remnant out of this land of sojourning. And that's our great hope in this Christmas season. And we are so thankful to every year be able to bring some content to you, our faithful listeners and to walk through the Bible with you. Thank you for hanging in there through this extended study of the book of Genesis. And, you know, in this Advent season, we do want to be mindful of that, that lineage of the seed. Uh, We hope that helps you, right? Because the entire Bible is tracing that seed. That's the beginning of the Christmas story. It starts in Genesis 3.15, right? And I hope Now, when you read those genealogies, when you're looking at Matthew tracing the genealogy of Christ through Joseph, or Luke tracing the genealogy of Christ through Mary, and how that ultimately leads all the way back to Adam, what that means, what's being told here, those can tend to be the boring parts of scripture, but that's actually where so much drama is unfolding because that's how God is piecing together and weaving together this, this grand narrative of redemptive history. Um, So you don't want to lose your, your, lose your focus and take your eyes off of just what God's up to and how he redeems people with a mighty hand even through some real scoundrels. Because if you read those uh, lineages, <laughs> that you know, Judah and Tamar, we went through that story. That's a part of the line of Christ. That was not a good situation. And uh, there's many more like it. So anyways, we hope in this Advent season, you're encouraged to, to look forward to the second Advent of Christ, his second coming, his parousia, and what that means for us. And hopefully you can reflect on the beauty of the promise that we have in the Messiah, our Lord Jesus Christ and his person and work. And we really hope you reflect on it this season. And um, we hope that just a deeper understanding of Genesis will just really help you understand that 
um, story of Christ even more and come to love him more and more. Nick, do you have anything to say by way of conclusion for this year and also conclusion for um, the book of Genesis? I think just to, to carry on what you said, just to thank our listeners for keeping with us over this past year. We thank you so much for tuning in, for engaging uh, on our social media, uh, for partaking in some of the giveaways that we had this year. And just a great reminder for us as we finish up the book of Genesis is as the book started, reminding us that there is only one true and living God. It reminds us at the end that there's still only one true living God and his people are his, not because of who they are or what they have done, but because of the great covenant promises that he bestows on them. And because he has so chosen us to be his, he will also sustain us, preserve us until the end, because he is gracious and kind and merciful to us who are sinners. And that's everybody, as we've seen throughout the book of Genesis. There's nothing but sinners in this world, and those whom he saves are the chief of sinners. So if you have yet to come to Christ, do it today, for there's no time like the present. There's no day like today to repent of your sins and trust in Christ. And if you are already united to him by faith, rejoice, celebrate the season, celebrate the great victory that Christ has won over the grave, sin, and Satan, and let us look forward to the great day of our complete restoration with the saints of all ages including a lot of a lot of these people from the book of genesis as well which will be joined to for eternity to praise christ for his redemption absolutely brother so happy new year merry christmas happy new year rejoice in the salvation of the lord through our lord and savior jesus christ we are so thankful to be able to bring you this podcast and we really hope you enjoy it we'll see you next year so as we say at the end of every year end podcast it is finished <laughs> <laughs>